willing to be open about these conversations is really important so that kids don't feel like they're hiding their feelings. They feel like they have trusted role models and adults that they can come to and talk to if they're having a hard time is crucially important here. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Rural Matters. You know, we're the leading podcast in rural education, health and business in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle Rathman. And when I'm not hosting Rural Matters, you can find me speaking around the country on matters of rural health, including leadership, culture improvement, strategies to improve community stakeholder engagement. And of course, for those of you who know me, know that I'm very focused and passionate about addressing our nation's rural hospital closure crisis, which I actually think has something to do with the topic we're going to be talking about today. So if you'd like to find out where I'm speaking next, you can visit michellerathman.com or follow me on Twitter at MRB Impact. And of course, as always, we hope that you'll follow the podcast on social as well. We're really easy to find. Just search for Rural Matters Pod. We are excited, as always, to have you tune in with us, whether you're listening on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We just hope that you'll subscribe to Rural Matters so that you can receive your new episodes automatically, and you can just check one thing off your day uh, uh, because we know that you're busy. So today's episode, um, I've been really wanting to talk about this subject for quite some time because I just think it just does not get enough attention. It's a difficult one to talk about. And what we're going to be talking about today is suicide in rural communities. Um, before introducing our guest for this discussion, let me share just some information and statistics that I found. And I know that she'll be responsible to, re to correct anything that I may have misstated. So first, according to a Journal of American Medicine research uh, from 1999 to 2016, the rate of suicide among American Americans ages 25 to 64 rose by 41 percent. Now, Rates among people living in rural counties were 25% higher than those in major metropolitan areas. And the study also found that from 2014 through 2016, suicide rates were 17.6 per 100,000 in large metropolitan counties compared to, ready for this number, 22 per 1,000 in rural counties. In their research, of course, they cite a number of factors appear to be driving suicide rates up in rural America, including poverty, low income, and underemployment. Now, certainly, I'm not qualified to have this conversation alone. So, uh, as I said, I'm really thrilled um, to have this guest with us. Her name is Carrie Henning-Smith, and she is the Deputy Director of the University of Minnesota Rural Health Research Center. And she's also an assistant professor in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Dr. Henning Smith has led multiple research projects at the Rural Health Research Center with a wide range of topics, including the social determinants of health, access and quality of care, aging and long-term care and mental health and suicide prevention. She was a 2017 Rural Health Fellow with National Rural Health Association and serves as a current editorial board chair for the Journal of Rural Health. She received her MPH and MSW from the University of Michigan and her PhD in Health Services Research Policy and Administration from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Henning Smith, or Carrie, we are so grateful to have you with us today to help us sort through this very serious issue with our Rural Matters Nation. So welcome to you this morning. Thank you, Michelle. I'm delighted to be here. This is not a fun topic to talk about, but it is important and necessary, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. 
Absolutely. You know, um, I think what's interesting to me is that for the good or bad or the ugly of it, we are seeing more and more headlines about this. And I think it's so important that we talk about it because this isn't just happening kind of in a bubble or it didn't just start happening overnight. The the statistics show that this has been uh, an issue that's been growing, a growing concern for rural areas. So let me just ask you from your perspective and all the research and the circles you travel in, how big of an issue is rural uh, community, uh, the impact of rural suicide in rural communities? This is a huge issue. You went over some of the statistics in the beginning, um, but just to reiterate some of those, the rate of suicide across the country is going in the wrong direction. It's been climbing over the last couple of decades. Um, In the period that you referenced from 1999 to 2016, um, and using other data from 2005 to 2015, sort of however we slice it, We see that every single state in the country has seen an increase in suicide, with the exception of Nevada. Mm -hmm. And that's not the direction that we want to see things going in. Suicide is currently the 10th leading cause of death in the country. Uh, We like to think that people are dying for reasons that are far beyond our control, Um, hopefully dying of natural causes at the end of life. I believe that suicide is a preventable cause of death, and the fact that we're seeing it as the 10th leading cause of death in the country should alarm all of us. The fact that the rates are increasing should especially alarm all of us. And as you mentioned, suicide rates are higher in rural areas than they are in urban areas. There are a whole bunch of reasons for that, and I think we'll dig into some of those in our conversation today. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I mean, the 10th leading cause of death, and I work with so many hospitals and we do a lot of community um, education and prevention. And we're talking about the normal things, if you will, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes and so forth. Um, but I do think that and we'll talk about this for sure. The stigma around mental health issues really sadly prevents us uh, from talking about it because it is uncomfortable. So let me ask you this. How does the prevalence of suicide differ between rural and urban populations? Because there's a reason why there's a rise. And and so talk about those differences. Absolutely. There is a reason why those arise. Um, So the research that you noted looks at adults ages 25 to 64 and Among those populations, people in younger adulthood up through middle age, the rate of suicide is 25% higher in rural areas compared with urban areas. The rate of suicide has also increased more quickly in rural areas than it has in urban areas. And so we're seeing the trend go in the wrong direction everywhere. We're seeing it go in the wrong direction more quickly in rural areas. You know, so I looked at, and I know that these are good friends of yours, the Rural uh, Health Information Hub, which is, to me, an outstanding um, website, an outstanding resource to get information. And so it talks about suicide in rural areas and obviously some of the some of the contributing factors like fewer health care services, mental health workforce shortages, which we'll also talk about. But I think what I'd like for you to touch on is the rise in suicide that we're seeing amongst some of our um, more distinct populations, so veterans, 
Native Americans, farmers, the LGBTQ community. Um, so can you touch on that a little bit about why we're seeing some higher rates of suicide amongst these groups within a rural setting? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, for one thing, I will give a plug later to the toolkit that you mentioned on RHI Hub. That was actually a toolkit that I developed in conjunction with my colleagues here at the University of Minnesota and with NORC um, and obviously with the Rural Health Information Hub website. It's something that we're really proud of and we hope that it's getting a lot of traction. Yeah, you're, and in that, by the way, your fingerprints were all over it, which is why I did my, re my research. <laughs> it's, it's excellent tool. Well, thank you. I, I hope it gets used widely. Mm -hmm. um, and in that toolkit, we highlight some specific populations that show higher risk for suicide. You mentioned several of them already. already. Veterans, farmers, American Indians, Native Americans, um, LGBTQ individuals, especially LGBTQ youth. Mm. Most of those populations are more prevalent in rural. So rural areas have a higher percentage of veterans. They obviously have more farmers and they're home to a much larger population of Native Americans, American Indians than, um, than the population average generally. There are distinct reasons why this suicide rate is higher in each of those populations. Some of it has to do with access to means. Um, we might get into some of that conversation later, um, access to to firearms, for one thing, but also to substances. Um, for farmers, we see a lot of concern around economic mm -hmm. stress, financial stress, also stress related to climate change and weather variability and things that are far beyond the control of individual farmers who are just trying to make their make their balance sheet match up um, at the end of the year, and that's increasingly difficult to do. For LGBTQ folks, especially youth in rural areas, a lot of it amounts to an issue of isolation. If you feel like you might be the only person um, of a certain group in your small town um, or you're the only person who's out in your small town, that can be a, a profoundly isolating experience and it can also set people up for being treated poorly, being discriminated against all of which leads to a higher risk of suicide. And so there are different interventions that are needed for these different population groups, but ultimately we need to find ways to make sure that everyone, regardless of who they are, uh, how they identify, what occupation they have, make, make sure that they feel supported and safe. Um, and as we're talking about population groups, I also want to mention that most of the research that we see out there on suicide rates is on adults ages 25 to 64, adults in kind of the, the middle stages of life. Mm -hmm. But younger folks, um, kids as young as 8, 9, 10, mm. we're seeing an increase in suicide among younger people at alarming rates. Um, the rate of suicide among those folks has tripled in the past decade or so. Um, and that should really, really concern all of us. There are also, I have, I just want to stop right there. I mean, eight, nine, and 10. So I have an eight-year-old grandson and I cannot imagine. So we, I want to stay on this subject, eight, nine, and 10 years old. So this means that, you know, as we're going to get into the discussion a little bit later about prevention, I, I want to ask you, what 
I have a lot of questions for you about how primary care, for example, can play a role in helping yeah. us. Because, of course, we know so many rural communities are, you know, lack access to mental health care services. And we talk a good game about how we're making strides with tele-behavioral health and so forth. But at the end of the day, how can a, commu- a rural community, when we take a look at this younger demographic of eight, nine, 10, teenagers and so forth, what are some of the things that our schools and our communities can do to help identify when a child is at risk? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think that there's a lot that we can do. And in that toolkit on the Rural Health Information Hub website, we talk about some school-based resources specifically. One thing that we can all do, um, and you have young kids, I have young kids, this is something that we can do as parents, but also as community members, is just to be open to having a conversation. There's so much stigma around suicide and so much stigma around anything to do with mental health generally. Being willing to be open about these conversations is really important so that kids don't feel like they're hiding their feelings. They feel like they have trusted role models and adults that they can come to and talk to if they're having a hard time is crucially important here. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people, um, certainly parents, I understand this as a parent myself, we're concerned that if you raise the topic of suicide, somehow you're going to be suggesting it to someone who isn't otherwise thinking about it. That's not the case. There's no evidence to back that up. Um, And by making kids aware of this in developmentally appropriate terms, um, but making them aware of their own mental health, their own sense of well-being, their own sense of belonging and acceptance, um, all of that is really, really important. And you're not going to cause any harm or cause any danger by having those conversations, but you may cause harm by not having open lines of communication and by not being able to give kids a trusted source that they can go to. I think that's an excellent point because, you know, just because we maybe don't feel like we are equipped, we don't have the communication skills or the tools, which is why I think the toolkit's so important um, because we're afraid that stigma carries on, not just for the person who might be feeling isolation uh, or is um, affected with a, a mental illness or disorder, or behavior disorder, it's those who who can make a difference, who can offer help and resources and developing their their confidence and their communication skills to actually know what the right thing is to say, because so often we just don't know what the right thing is to say. And we're very fast to say it'll pass, get over it, just feel better, smile more and that type of thing. And none of those are effective or helpful, I would imagine, for somebody who is, you know, seriously contemplating suicide. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I do want you to talk a little bit about the role that, for example, a primary care provider can play, because as we are uh, effectively dealing with a shortage of mental health provider services in rural communities, and of course, we do see the same trend with primary care providers, but for so many rural health clinics and, and uh, nurse practitioners, I'm just curious from your perspective in the research and kind of the real world work that you've done, what kind of programs you, have you found to be effective in a primary care setting? But before we have you answer that question, I really do want to acknowledge our sponsor for today's episode. We're very appreciative 
appreciative that they have um, continued to join us in, in support of Rural Matters. We are sponsored by the Partners for Education, whose annual Rural College Access and Success Summit brings together approximately 400 teachers, principals, superintendents, college access professionals, and other rural leaders to share ideas and strategies for ensuring rural youth have the opportunity to successfully transition from high school to college and career. In addition to 36 breakout sessions and six plenaries, there will be four pre-session workshops focused on starting a rural gear-up family engagement, trauma-informed schools, and design thinking. The 2020 Summit is co-hosted by College Success Arizona, will be held in Scottsdale, Arizona on April 26th through 28th. And for more information about how you can participate, just visit www.berea.edu slash PFE. And we'll make sure that we have that on the website so you can click and go and go directly to them. All right, so I want to get back to our discussion focused on suicide in rural communities with Dr. Carrie Henning-Smith. Of course, she's the Deputy Director of the University of Minnesota Rural Health Research Center and an Assistant Professor in the Division of Health Policy and Management at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. So before I acknowledge our sponsors, I wanted to ask you about uh, primary care and the role that our primary care providers can play in helping to uh, prevent, uh, detect, if that's the right terminology, how do you see them uh, intervening and, and being a useful resource for local uh, rural communities? I'm glad you're asking that question. I think it's really, really important, especially in a rural setting, to acknowledge the critical role that primary care providers play, whether they're family practice doctors, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, uh, nurses, these all are folks who have critical role in recognizing suicide risk and helping people connect with the resources that they need. Uh, there are many ways that this can be done. Ideally, people are screening in um, clinical care settings, especially when there's any risk factor detected for suicide and they feel as though they know exactly who to refer someone to, even if um, at a bare minimum, it's just a suicide prevention lifeline hotline that they can call. Um, ideally, there are strong community partners already engaged, and in a really ideal setting, we see integrated care where primary care is working alongside mental and behavioral health professionals, and there can be a warm handoff. A primary care provider may detect some suicide risk. Um, or even very vague thoughts about suicide in a clinical setting and can then walk someone directly over to someone else who has expertise in this area. Uh, I know that that's not always feasible in a rural setting where you may have a very skeletal staff who are doing all of the things and doing all of the things well, um, but may not have mental health um, or behavioral health in the same building or even in the same town. Uh, we have critical shortages of mental health professionals in rural areas, which is one of the ways that we need to address this issue um, by beefing up that workforce. Um, so I know that this won't always work in the ideal world and that we need to take that into account. I think it's also really important to note that while primary care providers and while primary care has a crucial role to play here, mm -hmm. they 
can't be expected to solve all of the problems. There are so many other things that underlie suicide risk. Um, there's some really nice research that was published in JAMA Network Open that showed that counties or communities that had um, more economic deprivation, higher rates of uninsurance, um, more gun shops, lower social capital, um, or fewer community connections, fewer social associations in the community, those are all associated with higher suicide risk. And so primary care providers are a critical partner here, but we need to do more to address the underlying context where we see suicide emerge. Yeah, you know, one statistic I read, um, and this was, I think, the uh, Mental Health Network was that approximately, and you'll tell me if this figure is correct, approximately 1.3 million people living in a rural area have thoughts of suicide each year. Yes. Um, yeah, we're, we're talking in the millions. And mm -hmm. most people who have thoughts of suicide will not act on those. But the tricky thing is that we don't know exactly who will act. Um, sometimes it's a matter of who has access the means um, or who has access to crisis care when those thoughts arise. And I think we need to pre be prepared to support all of those individuals. It's also really hard to, um, to accurately collect data on who is thinking about suicide. We do our best with data and statistics and surveys and knowing who's considering it. Um, but I would venture to say that I think that's probably an underestimate um, based on the stigma around suicide and admitting that you may be feeling that way. Yeah. Now, so let's talk about, we've talked about some of the underlying factors and, you know, the things we're talking about in terms of intervention at the primary care level and so forth. Let's just talk a little bit about the prevention of suicide in rural areas. You know, and I remind folks who listen to the podcast that, you know, if you've seen one rural community, you have seen one. So we can't just say there's a cookie cutter approach. However, I'm sure there are some really well-studied best practices to help us get closer to prevention so that we can reduce the number of actual suicides and help those who are contemplating it. So what are some of the things that you foresee uh, being the best practices to prevent suicide, in, a, in particular for a rural community? Yeah, absolutely. I, I put these kind of in two buckets. I think there is the short-term immediate prevention activities that are needed, uh, and then some long-term structural change that we need to really make an impact on suicide risk going forward. So in the short term, uh, we talked about being able to reduce stigma and have these conversations openly with your loved ones. We need to raise that to a community level. So increase public awareness, increase public education about suicide and suicide risk and about mental health in general, and have more of these conversations. I'm glad we're having this conversation mm -hmm. today. I have the solution. Um, School-based programming, we're seeing this alarming rise among children. The more we can increase conversations in school about mental health and well-being and self-esteem and making sure that every child feels safe and supported and like they have a trusted adult that they can go to. Um, we also need to think about how to address bullying in the school system. That's a big part of the equation for young people. And so school-based programming is broader than just talking with kids about suicide. It's building these structures to help all of them feel safe and supported as they grow. 
Uh, we need a, a solid crisis line, crisis support program across the country. We, we have this to some degree, but we need to make sure that people know that there are suicide hotlines available 24-7. And also in rural areas, it's especially important that we can have mobile crisis teams or individuals respond to someone who might be feeling acutely suicidal, someone who can go to them, help them get to a safe place and help them get the care that they need. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to ask you about the the youth, uh, where, in particular, when it comes to suicide and, and younger people. And we talk a lot about social isolation. And at the same time, we know that more young people are really engaged online and, and connected to the Internet. And I wonder in your research if you've been able to make a correlation between kind of online bullying and the exposure to online, some online programming and um, how it relates to suicide. Do you have anything that you can offer on that? Because I'm not suggesting that people just not allow their children to be online, but I would imagine there's got to be some kind of connection. There's absolutely a connection. Um, I haven't personally researched the connection myself, but I am really convinced by people who have been studying that connection. Um, I can think of far too many examples of even young children, um, tweens, teenagers being targeted and bullied online and then um, dying by suicide. Mm -hmm. One example of that is many. And the fact that I can think of multiple is horrific. Um, And so in our current day and age, we live in a very digital world. It's not realistic to assume that children won't be online. In fact, I think they they need to be literate to some degree in how to be online and how to engage in a digital world. What's important is that parents are a partner in that. And so parents should know how children are spending their time um, when they are online. There are all sorts of um, software apps and programs that are above my pay grade, but (laughs) that can help parents monitor their children's online activity, help them engage in meaningful conversations about where where they're going online. And again, if a child or a teenager feels like they have a trusted adult that they can talk to in real life, then if they are feeling bullied or targeted online, they're going to have someone that they can go to and talk about that experience, but they won't feel so completely isolated and alone in that experience. I think that probably the same is true for employers. I want to talk to you about that that for a moment. And then I want to talk just a little bit about the economic impact. So just as we would, you know, kind of making sure that teachers and educators and and, uh, administrators within a school setting have tools, have the training and and the communication expertise to talk about these things. And so now let's take a look at what employers in a rural community can do, because, uh, you know, we're not just talking about mom and pop shops, although, you know, I think that this is uh, relevant for anyone who operates a business. What are some of the tools um, that are out there for an employer to look at with respect to employee health? Because I think employee mental health is is as important as their physical health. What are you seeing uh, out there that's available for employers to become um, more educated on the subject and, and having some direction as to what to do if they should they encounter an employee who might be presenting with some um, with some st- symptoms? Because it's not the symptoms are not the same as is what we might you know see with somebody who's presenting with you know a, a cold or the flu or something like that. W- what do you suggest in that regard? 
Yeah, I think it's a really great question. Employers are a key player in any community. Um, And as we talked about before, economic stress, financial stress can be one key risk factor for suicide. Again, having a healthy economy, having healthy employer base in a community is crucial to reducing suicide risk. So I hope that employers see themselves as part of this equation and as a very important part of this equation. Um, And I think that employers are increasingly acknowledging the economic value of employee wellness. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people in um, working for bigger employers are now fully familiar with employee wellness programs and what you need to do to um, improve your own health, maybe just to knock a few hundred dollars off of your health insurance um, Mm -hmm. but hopefully also to genuinely improve your health. But I'm not sure that all of those employee wellness programs are openly talking about mental health and about suicide risk. And I think that we can do that and we can take that step to acknowledge that uh, in employees, whole health, whole well-being is part of them being a good colleague, a good employee, a good community member. um, And we can all support one another in this. So to the extent that employers want to learn how to do this well, there are nice trainings out there. There's um, mental health first aid, and then there are trainings that are specific to suicide prevention, one called QPR, Question, Persuade, and Refer. Hmm. Employers could see about bringing trainings like this into the worksite or at the very least taking trainings like this themselves, making sure that supervisors and managers in the worksite have been trained on suicide risk, knowing that if someone um, is displaying behaviors that they feel like are uncharacteristic, that might be uh, a place to notice um, and wonder and check in on that employee's well-being. We won't always see signs like that, um, but starting to recognize and acknowledge some of those is really important. And then I think as communities are starting to grapple with this or as um, Local and state governments are trying to think about potential policy interventions, making sure that employees have a seat at that table and are key partners here. As you mentioned, suicide, uh, beyond having a deep and tragic and lasting emotional toll on the people that it touches, has an economic cost. Um, It hurts society. It hurts all of us. And so it feels crass to put a dollar amount on human life, and yet we know that there is a cost to each life that's lost to suicide. And so at the very least, if we can persuade employees, employers to be a partner because of the dollars alone, um, that's okay with me. We would just want to make sure that they're partners in this work. I'm so glad you brought that up because we know just like, you know, there's no difference if losing somebody. Well, I will say there is a difference, but I will say that when a family member loses a loved one to suicide, there is a significant emotional and and other cost involved. And so someone who has lost and I, I, I printed this out because I think it was important to kind of end with this. Someone who has lost a loved one to suicide is considered a suicide survivor and survivors of suicide often experience intense and complex grief that they may be accompanied by feelings of guilt. So due to the stigma, so it's not just the the loss of life of a loved one, it's the, the cost and the toll that it takes on the survivors. And I would hope that the toolkits that, and I'm sure they do, that they provide survivors with um 
tools and resources that they can then turn to to help them cope and and move on uh, with their lives. And I would imagine that you know, you know this is probably something that's not really looked at because we're, we're the stigma is there to even talk about mental health. But how do you help a survivor uh, of suicide in a rural community? What resources uh, are available? What do you recommend? Yeah, well, I think first of all, acknowledging that survivors are not alone. It is a really complicated type of grief to feel. And as you said, sometimes it's accompanied with feelings of guilt or thoughts of what could I have done? Did I do enough? Did I miss some warning sign? Um, And I can't think of anything more horrible than living with those feelings. So knowing that survivors are not alone, it can feel so isolating. And the more that we have these public conversations and talk about this, the more that I hope survivors will feel comfortable and able to talk about their own experience so that they can start to connect with one another. Um, Most people know someone who has died by suicide. Um, This is unfortunately not uncommon. Mm -hmm. And so most of us are survivors. Uh, It's just a matter of degree, depending on how close you were to the person who died by suicide. But raising this public awareness reducing the stigma of talking about it. Um, And then I think survivors need to think about how to attune to their own mental health, their own sense of well-being. Um, Unfortunately, survivors face a suicide risk themselves, um, and we sometimes see that in the aftermath of a suicide. And so making sure that they are getting the care and support that they need um, and then connecting with others in this public forum, this public conversation. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. And before we close out, I'd like uh, for you to share with our listeners uh, what resources are available um, as you know concerning this topic. And on top of that, after you answer that question, if you could suggest, you know, for any community leader, any any community activist listening um, to this podcast, what might be one thing they can do to move the dial on this conversation locally where they live? So first a few uh, resource ideas for us, and then maybe one uh, positive, tangible step that our listeners can take to address this issue in their rural community. Yeah, um, I love both of those questions. Thank you. So resources, we've talked a lot about the toolkit, but I want to make sure that people know exactly how to get to it. Uh, It's on the Rural Health Information Hub website. That's at ruralhealthinfo.org. Under that website, you can click on Tools for Success. You'll see a link for evidence-based toolkits, and within that, you will see the Rural Suicide Prevention Toolkit. It is full of tangible steps that people in rural communities can take to address suicide risk in their own communities. Uh, I also want to put in a plug for the Rural Health Research Gateway, which is a clearinghouse for national research on rural health issues, including suicide and lots on mental health and mental health workforce. There are also really great organizations that are doing work in this space, including the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the American Association of Suicidology, the Trevor Project, and the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, to name just a few. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others. The U.S. government has been involved in suicide prevention activities for a long time, too. And for anyone listening to this podcast who has someone in mind who they're concerned about or who may be concerned about their own um, suicide risk and their own well-being, 
There is the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It connects with a national um, coordinated center of call centers across the country that will answer calls 24-7 for anyone at any stage in a suicide crisis. That number is 1-800-273-TALK or 8255. Um, So I want to make sure that that number gets out to people. In terms of a positive step that a rural community stakeholder or leader could take, I would say start this conversation in your community. And that might look different because every rural community, as you said, has its own unique flavor. It might be hosting a community meeting to start the conversation. It might be bringing this up at the next community planning um, session or talking with other rural stakeholders within your community to talk about how to move this conversation forward. Um, the bad news is that this is a complicated and complex issue. There are all sorts of things that contribute to risk factors. The good news is that that means there are all sorts of places in which to intervene. And the only the only wrong step would be taking no step at all. There are all sorts of steps that could be taken here. Absolutely. I cannot tell you how much I agree with that because, you know, the time to talk about it is not waiting until an- another incident happens in your community. So being proactive is what I'm hearing you saying is the most important thing we can do. My goodness, I just cannot thank you enough for talking about this subject with us. Uh, Dr. Carrie Henning-Smith, your work is so very important. And thank you for all those wonderful resources. We will make sure that uh, when this podcast drops, we'll make sure that all those resources are listed on the page so that you can easily navigate and find your way. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. I also want to acknowledge and thank our Role Matters marketing partners um, because they are so important of helping get this information out as well. So I'd like to acknowledge Center for Rural Affairs, Community Hospital Corporation, Foundation for Rural Service, the Journal of Research in Rural Education, Learning Blade, NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, the National Rural Education Association, the National Rural Health Association, and Ohio Small and Rural Collaborative, and AASA, that's the School Superintendents Association, and the National Rural Assembly. These partnering organizations, as I said, they really help rural matters to be an even more powerful forum for the discussion of the issues affecting rural communities, like the conversation we had today about suicide. Now, if you would like more information on these rural issues that we're talking about or to suggest a guest or a topic, please just email us at podcast today. That's the number two today at gmail.com. And of course, we always appreciate you rating this podcast on iTunes. We are well over the 20,000 download mark. So thank you for that. We hope that you'll tell your friends and colleagues about us. And of course, I want to thank our producer, Michael Levin Epstein, for all his support. Again, thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you again next time on Rural Matters. Mm-hmm.